of Hebrews chapter 7 as we consider a, another man in the list of those whose names begin with the letter M that we find in Scripture this morning. It's a priest by the name of Melchizedek. I invite you and encourage you to attend uh, worship again this evening as this really is a, a two-parter. Um, this morning we look at uh, the man Melchizedek and what the book of Hebrews informs us of tonight, uh, the necessity of the two natures of Christ. And they really do tie in together with one another. And so I'd encourage you along those lines. Hebrews chapter 7 is our scripture text for this morning. Let us hear then and be attentive to God's breathed out word. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first. By translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoil. Those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced 
through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the grantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and called and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again we give you thanks this day that we can gather together this morning in worship. Father, for a small taste of what the eternal reward will be of heaven. And Father, as we gather around this morning to hear your word proclaimed, we just pray, Father, that Christ would be eminent in our thoughts and our, our reasoning. And Father, that we would continue to do what we can, Father, to spread the gospel around the world. All this we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Three things from our message on Melchizedek this morning. First of all, his introduction, which we find in the book of Genesis. That's where the account of this man comes from. Secondly, the mention that we find of Melchizedek in the Psalms. And then thirdly, this explanation of Hebrews. Melchizedek is one of those very interesting characters in the fact that Although he is found historically in the Old Testament, there are more verses about him in the New Testament than in the Old. Three books mention him, as I said before, Genesis, Psalms, and Hebrews. But more is said in Hebrews than in the other two combined. Which means that he is there prophetically. That's his ultimate purpose and point of being included in the scriptures, prophetically pointing us to the one who is indeed the great high priest, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But let's go back to Genesis chapter 14, where we, he is introduced to us. And let me highlight, I'm not going to read the entire portion, I'll commit that to your reading for this afternoon as well. But let me highlight what happens here, even as the author of Hebrews has sort of introduced him to us there in the opening verses as well. He occurs historically upon the pages of Scripture during the life of Abraham. So we've got to go 
way back, Genesis chapter 14, life of Abraham. We need to be reminded then that this is before Moses. The events that take place here that involve Melchizedek are before Moses. Moses doesn't arrive on the scene until the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, which is going to be roughly computed about 500 plus years after this mention in Genesis. And those spans of time just kind of boggle the mind, don't they? We're, we're used to talking about something 10 years ago or 50 years ago or as we celebrated as a, a nation our independence some 230, 40 years ago. And those numbers like, seem like, oh, that's so long ago. Well, here we have between this man's mention in Genesis 14 and Moses a 500-year period of time. But he is before Moses, meaning then he is before Sinai. He is before the law. He is before the establishment of God's law as was given on Sinai, which includes not only the Ten Commandments, but includes all of those various regulations regarding sacrifices, which includes as well the ordination and installation of priests. And the calling of the tribe of Levi to be that tribe out of which the priests come. 500 years now before that law. We meet this man by the name of Melchizedek. The circumstances under which we meet him is this. There is a war. Various kings gather together in the land of Canaan and the surrounding area. To make war on other kings. Those kings that gather together, the five kings, defeat the other kings that are in Canaan, including the king of Sodom. Which is where Lot is living at the time we come to Genesis chapter 14. That's why Abraham gets involved. His nephew, Lot, and his wife, and Daughters have been taken captive by these other kings. Abraham decides to become involved in it. He brings his 318 trained military men together. And he goes off to rescue Lot. That is his purpose. In the process of rescuing Lot, he defeats these other kings... And brings back all of the spoil. Now Abraham has some helpers involved in this as well. A couple of other men along with their trained men come along with him. So he is successful in rescuing Lot. As Abraham is coming back. We read of this man by the name of Melchizedek. And so if you turn in Genesis chapter 14, go down to verse 17. After his return, that is Abraham, from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavad, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine 
he was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, so he, that is Melchizedek, blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Thus far, that portion. So what do we learn about this man? We learn two things. One, he was a priest. Melchizedek, we are told, was a priest of God Most High. Now, once again, 500 years before Sinai, 500 years before the law, he is not a Levite. He is not even a descendant, as far as we know, of Abraham. He's not one of the tribes. That, that hasn't even occurred yet. That doesn't happen until we have Jacob and his sons. So before all of that, here is a man who is designated on the pages of Scripture of being a priest. And it's not some pagan priest. It is the priest of the God Most High. Same designation that Abraham is going to use to talk, talk about the Lord as well. He is a priest. And in his function as a priest, I want you to note three things that he does. One, he blesses. He blesses. Blessed be Abraham. Blessed be God Most High. That is the work, that is the function of a priest. That is what is happening here. He is doing the work and calling of the priest. I've said upon many occasions, and I'll bear repeating this morning. There is a sense in which the two most important times of worship are the beginning and the end, the bookends of our worship. Because it is there that the priest, Jesus Christ, greets us. And it is there that the priest, Jesus Christ, blesses us. Those are the two, in a sense, I, I, I wouldn't say categorically, but in a sense, those become the two most important times. Because if you stop to think about it, who of us, when we come into this sanctuary, in the presence of God, are not sinners? Yet the amazing thing, the miracle that takes place every Sunday morning and Sunday evening is that we are not consumed. We come into the presence of God, sinners, but we are not destroyed. How can we, who are sinful people, be in the presence of a holy God? Remember Nadab and Abihu? 
sinful men who tried to show up in the presence of God. What happened? The consuming of fire of God went forth and destroyed them. Because of the priest, Jesus Christ. The only reason we live through a worship service is because of Christ. Grace that is extended to us as believers, grace that is extended to you as unbelievers. We're not consumed in this moment, in the presence of a holy God, sinful as we are, because we have a priest who welcomes us and greets us with grace, with mercy, and with peace. And we have a priest forever who sends us on his way with his blessing. That's why I'll remind you again, be in the sanctuary when those blessings occur. Because else you're missing it. It's not a matter of salvation. But it is a matter of blessing upon your life. See, that's what Melchizedek does. Abraham comes back from this war. And Melchizedek comes out and he blesses him. Secondly, notice he brings. He brings something to Abraham. And note what he brings. Amazing, isn't it? He brings him bread and wine. Think of the significance of bread and wine as you go through Scripture. Think of the significance of the one who is the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who says to his disciples in that upper room, here is my body as he hands them that bread. Here is my blood as he hands him that cup. There are many who believe that in the Old Testament here, this picture that we have of Melchizedek, this foreshadowing that is taking place, is truly a Christophany. This really is Christ showing up in the Old Testament. Because we read nothing else of him other than this event taking place. But certainly, if, if not Christ himself, there is certainly the picture that what does the high priest offer? He offers himself. Here is bread. Here is wine. This is what I give to you. This is what you need. This is what is necessary to be strengthened. Something good for us to reflect on for the next two weeks before we celebrate the Lord's Supper once again. But there is a third way in which he functions as a priest. He receives. He receives from Abraham a tithe. Now this is before the law. So we have to see here that this is not a law principle. I know there are many people who believe this whole subject of the tithe Oh, that's just the law, and after all, you know, that's an Old Testament thing. That's part of the ceremonial thing. So we don't have to tithe anymore. All we have to do is give offerings. No, because the picture here is, the shadow here is, the reality is that Abraham is giving a tithe before the law has even come. 
The whole point we're going to get to in Hebrews is that this priesthood of Christ surpasses the priesthood of the law. This idea of giving a tithe is indeed an eternal principle. And I want you to note, because I think it bears noting, okay? And I say this once again, and, and you know that, that you understand, those of you who are members understand our financial situation. You know this is not a beg. You know this is not a plea. You know this is not, hey, we're running short. That, that's not the issue. The issue is obedience. The issue is doing that which God's word commands us to. Are you tithing? Or are you shorting God? Are you shorting the priest, Jesus Christ? The second thing is, are you playing a game with it by going around the priest? Saying, well, you know, looks to me, Melchizedek, like you got enough. So instead of giving it to you, which is that which is commanded, that which is expected, rather than giving to you, do you have a cause you're kind of interested in, Melchizedek? Is, is there a food pantry somewhere I can give my money to? Because I don't really want to give it to you because you look like you've got, you've got it pretty good. So I'm going to go around you and give my tithes somewhere else. My friends, that is not biblical. And God's not going to bless it. We have to remain biblical according to that which God says. It isn't that Abraham comes and looks at him and man, you're a king, you got a whole city. Man, well, you don't need my tithe. I'm going to go somewhere else with it. No, that's not the issue. The issue is doing that which God commands us to do. Else, you see, what's going to happen is this. We're going to end up saying, which is what ultimately non-tithing people are doing, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The whole earth is the Lord's. He don't need my tithe. I need my tithe more than the Lord needs my tithe. So I'm going to keep my tithe, and I'm going to buy my jet ski with it. I'm going to buy a new car with it. I'm going to buy a vacation home with it. I'm going to educate my children with it. I'm going to do this with it. I'm going to buy those fancy wheels for my truck. I'm going to buy that great big 55-inch TV with it. Because the Lord don't need it. Look at how much the Lord has. See, when we put it in that perspective, we go, I don't think that's a good idea. Then why do we do it if we think the church has too much money? Who is the church? But the body of Christ. That is who we are called to tithe to. He is a priest, is this Melchizedek. But secondly, he is also a king. We are told he is the king of the city of Salem, or Salam, which is actually the city of Jerusalem, which is actually the city of peace, which is interesting because when you go back over chapter 14, the city over which Melchizedek is king isn't one of those involved in the war. 
He didn't have anybody taken captive. Because you see, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. You remember those lines we, we read here? We sang a few moments ago. My advocate appears for my defense on high. The father bows his ears and lays his thunder by. Not all that hell or sin can say shall turn his heart, his love away. Nothing, nothing, nothing. The city over which Melchizedek rules isn't in the fight. But he comes to Abraham to bless him for the work he has done, for that which he has showed. Amazing picture for us on these pages. And that's it. That's all we have. Until we turn to Psalm 110. And I invite you to turn with me there a moment. Psalm 110. Let me read these seven verses. A Psalm of David. So now we're after Moses and the law, but we're obviously before the book of Hebrews. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. There he is, mentioned again. The only other place in the Old Testament Melchizedek's name appears. I want you to just note three things with me. This is a prophecy. This is prophetic. How do I know that? Because it is this verse that is quoted in Hebrews chapter 7. The author of Hebrews is saying this verse here in the psalm written by David was prophesying about the coming of Jesus Christ. The second thing to note about this passage is that it is referring particularly to the priesthood. It is not so much a reference to his kingship, but it's, it's focusing in on the fact that Melchizedek was a priest. Thirdly, the emphasis is on the fact that the priesthood is permanent. You are a priest forever. The Lord has sworn will not change his mind. See, there's that sense of, of permanence. This isn't going to change. Whatever there is back here in Genesis chapter 14, out of which David, through the Holy Spirit, is focusing in on the aspect that is being drawn out by the Holy Spirit out of that occurrence in Genesis 14, is the fact that that was a prophecy, a shadow. And you know, as, as 
as we walk around and as we've experienced a lot of sunshine lately, shadows can sometimes be blurry. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish. What is that a shadow of? Sometimes we get, our children get scared at night because there is a shadow and they can't tell very clearly what it is. But sometimes shadows are crystal clear. That is the case here. This is crystal clear. The Melchizedek of Genesis 14, the Melchizedek of Psalm 110, is clearly a shadow of Jesus Christ, who is a priest forever. So now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7. Now what is the author of Hebrews drawing our attention to in regards to this priest? Well, keep your finger, Hebrews 7. Go back to one verse in Hebrews chapter 3. Just a couple of verses back. A couple of chapters back, excuse me. The first verse of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, the book of Hebrews, as best we can tell from our vantage point here, is, is that it was written as a call to the Jewish people to consider Jesus. It is written as a call, a message. We might call it a missionary message to the Jewish people to consider Jesus. And over the course of the next chapters, three, four, five, six, seven, and beyond, the author of Hebrews is saying, I want you to consider Jesus. Consider the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses and that Jesus is greater than Joshua. Consider the fact that as a priest, Jesus is greater than Aaron and he is greater even than Melchizedek. That's where we're at when we get to chapter 7. When we come to this chapter, Melchizedek has been introduced to us at the end of chapter 6. He mentions him, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And what the author's point is, I want you to consider the priesthood of Jesus as being superior to any other priesthood that has ever existed. And so in our time remaining this morning, I would ask you, consider the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus. Consider it. Now, secondly, as we come to chapter 7, it's kind of interesting that there seems to be some sort, the way in which the author is, is introducing this, there seems to be some awareness on the part of the Jewish people of this man. Now, commentators... Tend, tend to believe that, yes, there was the Aaron priesthood 
that existed. And they understood that and they lived under that. But there was always an awareness because of Abraham being, as it were, the father of the faith, that this Melchizedek held some sort of superior position over these descendants of Aaron who served in the Levitical line of priesthood. And as the author of Hebrews now begins in chapter 7, he's, he's picking up on that. He's saying, you remember Melchizedek, right? You, you remember who Melchizedek is. Obviously, you know who Aaron is, but Jesus is superior to that. But you also remember Melchizedek. You know how high an esteem you hold him and think about him? Well, Jesus is superior even to Melchizedek. The third thing I want you to know is the resemblance. The resemblance. The author of Hebrews in chapter 7 references several times the fact that Jesus' priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. It's the quote found in verse 17. He is after the order of Melchizedek. Now, just do something a minute. Go back to chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. He also says in another place, here's the quote again. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Go down verse 10. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Go to chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And now again, chapter 7, 17, you are a priest forever, after the order of the Melchizedek. Why is that important? Because what the author is conveying is that the priesthood of Jesus is not of the order of Melchizedek. It is after the order. What's the difference? The difference is this. The use, if, if, when, when we were to, if we were to say, uh, Abiathar was a priest, not after the order of Aaron. Abiathar was a priest of the order of Aaron. In other words, he belonged to that geneal genealogical line. By saying that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he is not saying he's a descendant of Melchizedek. He is a biological heir of Melchizedek. What the author is saying is that the priesthood of Jesus is similar to 
resembles. See, he's, he's trying to point out to the, these, this Jewish audience that a priest could be a priest without the necessity of being a descendant of Aaron. And the Jews would say, no, 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 it can't be. And what the author is saying, sure they can. Look at Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest that even Abraham brought a tithe to. Melchizedek is a priest who brought bread and wine. Melchizedek is a priest who blessed. Jesus is a priest, not a descendant of Melchizedek, but he is a priest in the sense of that Melchizedek was also a priest, called and designated by God before Moses, before Sinai, before the law. The point of which is that it is eternal. One interesting thing the author of Hebrews includes about Melchizedek is that he has no lineage. There is no father, no mother mentioned. There's no tribe, there's no race, there is no nation of which he is a part. It's interesting to, to think about that. Verse 3, chapter 7. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. There's something about this Melchizedek that draws us as a shadow to the realities of Christ. And the thing that the author here is focusing on most intently is the idea that the priesthood is forever. It's forever. Why is the priesthood of Jesus superior to the priesthood of the law? Because those priests died. And those priests sinned. And those priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves. But Christ's priesthood is superior. Because it is forever. Note four things that emphasize this in Hebrews chapter 7. First of all, note verse 22, that the covenant that is established by Jesus is a better covenant. It's not a covenant of works. It's not a covenant of law. It's a covenant of grace. In the hymn that we sang, we, we use the word surety. That, that's the one, the idea of the surety is the one who, who makes sure that the covenant is kept. Christ is the surety. He is the one who makes sure the covenant is kept. That's why it is superior. Because it is better. Why is it better? Because it is forever. Because it shall never be broken. The covenant of grace that God has established with me and you through the priesthood of Jesus Christ shall 
never stops. It isn't the priest dies and now it's, oh, we got to go into a special little enclave and we all need to vote and we need to send up smoke signals out of the little stack in the Vatican to figure out who's going to be our next papa. We have a priest forever. Satan, stop coming back and tormenting me about past sin. I have a priest forever. Who doesn't need to continually offer sacrifices and sacrifices and sacrifices and sacrifices and I got to make sure I get my last rites in else that sin may be held accountable against me. He has saved to the uttermost. That's the second thing. It's not only a better covenant. Look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Completely. One of the variation of the readings of that is to all time. It wasn't just at that moment and point in history. It is forever. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost, to the core. To that tucked down, hidden, covered over, layered over, hardened over sin. Jesus saved to the core, to the uttermost. He saves, not just for a few minutes of temporary relief, but he saves from that sin forever. Verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives. He is always, 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 always interceding for you and I. Always before the Father. And the nailed, pierced hands and feet of Christ. The one sufficient, eternal sacrifice for my sin. Before the Father, always interceding. Father, forgive him. He knows not what he does. Always. Do you have him as your high priest? Is that who's interceding for you? Or are you trying to do it? Are you saying, Jesus, stand to the side, let me do this. I can do a much better job. Dear God, in your name I, I come to you, and, and I'd ask you to forgive me for all of my sins because, you know, I'm a pretty decent guy. I work hard. I try not to lie. I try not to cheat on my wife. I try to be nice to my kids. Lord, I want, you know, you, would you forgive me? You try to do it yourself. Or perhaps you want to ask Mary to do it? 
Mary, would you intercede? Uh, St. Peter, could, could you talk to God for me? Book of Hebrews. I have a high priest who always intercedes. Maybe you don't think you need intercession. Maybe you think you live such a good, holy, and perfect, pure life. You don't need an intercessor. You haven't done anything that bad in a long time. Certainly God has forgotten. No, he hasn't. And without the blood-covered page, on your life. Someday that which is hidden. Will become known. And you will bear. The punishment. But as believers. Who are in Christ. We have. One who is always. Making intercession. Verse 28. He appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You see, Jesus is never going to mess up. His priesthood will never be deficient. But in him, we have also been made perfect forever the sight of a holy God. That's why in Him you're not consumed. And that's why through Him you may go. Amen? Amen.